Are legitimate criticisms leveled against the Trump administration distracting from vital conversations about systemic and structural racism in the United States? How significantly has an appeal of a Philadelphia court judge's ruling by a supposedly progressive district attorney set back the campaign to free Mumia Abu-Jamal? What do members of the Move 9 remember about the day Philadelphia police swarmed and raided their communal home in August of 1978? What significant changes have they discovered in the world more than 40 years after their unjust incarceration for the murder of a police officer? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we mark Black History Month with three provocative interviews relating to racial injustice in the United States. We first get an overview of what resistance looks like two years into the Trump administration from radio host and commentator Glenn Ford. We next get an update on a dramatic turn in the case of America's most high-profile political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Finally, we get an exclusive interview with two members of the Move 9 and their son, about their ordeal at the hands of the system and their recent release after four decades in jail. On today's program, Black History Month special, Trump-era resistance, Mumia's plight, and freedom for the Move 9. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 22nd, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Since Paul Martin's liberals played an important role in violently ousting Jean Bertrand Aristide's government in 2004, Canada has financed, trained, and overseen the Haitian National Police. As took place the night Aristide was forced out of the country by U.S. Marines, Canadian troops were recently photographed patrolling the Port-au-Prince airport. Taking their cue from Ottawa, the dominant media have downplayed the scope of the recent protests and repression in Haiti. There have been few, any, stories about protesters putting their bodies on the line for freedom and the greater good. Instead, the media has focused on the difficulties faced by a small number of Canadian tourists, missionaries, and aid workers. That comes from the article, Canadian Policy on Venezuela, Haiti Reveals Hypocrisy That Media Ignores, by Eve Engler, posted February 20th, originally appearing at the author's blog, eveengler.com. Venezuelan authorities have expelled six deputies of the European Parliament, or EP, this Sunday after denying them entrance to the country. The European politicians who traveled in a personal capacity had previously been warned through diplomatic channels that they would not be allowed in the country, but the group opted to proceed with the trip. The delegation was made up of MEP Esteban González Pons, MEP José Ignacio Salafranca, and MEP Gabriel Mato, all from Spain's hard-right popular party. 
Also present were MEP Juan Salafranca from Spain's European People's Party, MEP Esther de Lange of the Dutch Christian Democratic Party, and MEP Paulo Rangel from Portugal's Social Democratic Party. Amongst other planned activities, they were to meet with self-proclaimed interim president Juan Guaido while in Caracas. That comes from the article, Venezuela Expels Euro Deputies Amid Reports of Talks with Washington, by Paul Dobson. Posted February 20th, originally published at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. The Duma attack was not the first and only case when studio work was presented by the U.S.-led bloc as a decisive evidence justifying its actions in the conflict. After the April 2017 attack in Khan Shekun, experts voiced concern that the video released by the White Helmets as a proof of the chemical attack conducted by the Assad regime was staged. In fact, weaponized disinformation campaigns, staged videos, and fake news are common approaches used by the U.S. military and special services to promote their own agenda around the world. The U.S. was actively using these tools during its intervention in Iraq and after it. According to the later revelations, the employed programs were varying from placing Pentagon-provided articles in Iraqi newspapers as quote-unquote unbiased news, to producing footage, which were made to look as if they had been, quote, created by Arabic TV, unquote, and CDs with fake Al-Qaeda videos, which then distributed through various channels. That comes from the article appearing under the headline, Video, Staged Chemical Attack Videos and Other Trends in Modern Propaganda, posted February 20th, originally published at South Front. CJPME points out that while the Jewish community is often portrayed as staunchly pro-Israel, Jewish opinion on Israel is much more wide-ranging, as more than a third or 37% of Jewish Canadians hold a negative opinion of the Israeli government. While our Canadian politicians continue to argue that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, the majority of Jewish Canadians themselves, or 58%, do not believe criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Moreover, nearly a third of Jewish Canadians, or 30%, believe that the Palestinian call for a boycott of Israel is reasonable, condemning the Canadian government's 2016 motion to denounce human rights activists who endorse a boycott of Israel. In fact, nearly half of Jewish Canadian participants, or 48%, recognize that accusations of anti-Semitism are often leveraged to silence legitimate criticism of Israeli government policies. CJPME notes that a 2017 survey sponsored by CJPME and IJV revealed that Canadian government policy on Israel is not representative of most Canadians' views. That comes from the article, Survey Reveals Many Jewish Canadians Critical of Israel, by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, posted February 20th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. While there's much to condemn about the current occupant of the White House and his policies, racial injustice in the modern era did not begin with the arrival of Make America Great Again. 
to review the progress or lack thereof for the black reality in America two years into the post-Obama era, we're joined by Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford is a distinguished radio show host and commentator. In 1977, Ford co-launched, produced, and hosted America's Black Forum, the first nationally syndicated black news interview program on commercial television. Ford co-founded the Black Commentator in 2002 and launched the Black Agenda Report in 2006, where he continues to serve as executive editor. Ford is also the author of The Big Lie, an analysis of the U.S. media coverage of the Grenada invasion. Glenn Ford, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. Thanks for inviting me. You've been outspoken about the failures of the Obama administration, noting, for example, that mass deportations of illegal immigrants did not begin with Trump. Um, without soft-peddling those failures, to what extent would you say racial injustice and inequality has worsened under Trump? Oh, I'm sure that uh, with Trump uh, in the White House, uh, that the racist cops everywhere uh, feel that they have a friend, and he's assured them over and over again uh, that he is that friend. And we remember, of course, on the campaign trail, uh, Trump was urging police not to be so gentle with uh, people they had in custody. Uh, so in terms of, of, of moral support for racism uh, among the folks that least need it, which are the cops in the United States, yeah, Trump uh, is, it, that does make a difference. It's been noted that on this program that Trump at least had the virtue of being a more honest symbol of the violence, xenophobia, misogyny, and racism inherent within the United States system. Do you have concerns about the hostility that we've seen among progressives directed primarily at Trump, uh, distracting the public from more fundamental, structural, and systemic problems? Yeah, that is, in fact, the other side of the coin. Uh, everybody and their mother is now an anti-racist. I've never seen such a uh, verbally non-racist country. Uh, but, of course, uh, that's, that's an illusion and a diversion. Uh, we, we see, for example, that Chicago brags that it's a sanctuary city. Uh, well, they're talking about uh, Chicago's policies uh, with regard uh, to undocumented people. But, of course, Chicago has never been a sanctuary city for black people. It's one of the, the most racist uh, cities in, in the country. Uh, at, but people in Chicago, uh, the powers that be, the Democrats that be in Chicago, uh, can claim that they're anti-Trump, and, of course, they're anti-racist, and they're a sanctuary city, but not a damn thing's changed on the ground. We, we've been seeing uh, efforts uh, at the national level to uh, you know, get involved with the, the political process and, and elect uh, progressive Democrats, say, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or, or Ilhan Omar, you know, uh, you know, women of color in particular, to, to uh, high office. What are your thoughts? Are, are, are these worthy, if limited, endeavors? Uh, a complete waste of time, or, or worse, possibly a distraction from more fundamental strategies for addressing the injustices and inequalities of our time? Well, the Democratic Party is in the business of distraction. They are experts at it. But in that process, uh, certain social forces are at work, and, and real, genuine uh, protest, real, genuine politics can break through. Uh, I'm not ready to call 
uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a distraction. I don't think uh, that the publicity that she's given to the idea of a Green New Deal is distractive. Uh, and even if folks uh, mean to be distractive, they can often set in motion a conversation that they can't control. I don't think that uh, she is a socialist, nor is Bernie Sanders. But when you start uh, saying that you're a socialist and you put the term in the general conversation, well, uh, that that uh, some some folks will act, will actually get around to learning what socialism really is, and so that's a productive conversation. Uh, so that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I'm I'm glad the conversation is is occurring. Mm. Well, what about the the phenomenon of of mass incarceration? Uh, because I, I think that uh, like slowly we're starting to see an evolution of the discussion around crime and punishment and recognition that mass incarceration is is a tool, uh, extremely racialized tool. Uh, of ongoing uh, repression. I mean, you know, through the prison industrial complex, more black people are slaves today than uh, there were in, in the uh, 19th century. So do you see that reality starting to percolate through and get addressed in, in a fundamental way? Or, or is that still pretty much off the, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, outside of the view of, of modern uh, activists? Well, the conversation, the mass awareness now of mass black incarceration uh, is, in fact, the brightest light uh, that's been shining uh, on us in, in, in probably uh, the last two or three generations. Uh, it's the only uh, arena in which we had the semblance of a movement uh, after having no mass movements since the 1960s. So that's the bright light. Uh, mass black incarceration is now on everyone's lips, uh, and that, I think mass black incarceration and gentrification are the two biggest challenges facing uh, black America. Gentrification is also uh, now part of the dialogue surrounding this Green New Deal, this massive remake of American e economy, which means a remake of, of, of the society. Uh, gentrification is is top on the list, not necessarily uh, because of what it's done to black folks, but because uh, there has to be a reworking of how folks live if we're going to adjust to the new climate reality. Hmm. And the uh, the role of media, are we seeing uh, backward forces that are uh, undermining uh, authentic struggle? You know, I came... Uh, uh, to, uh, professional maturity in the golden age of black radio, uh, when there were newscasters at every black-oriented radio station, uh, to the extent that in Washington, D.C., uh, just uh, three black-oriented radio stations fielded 21 reporters. Uh, that was the golden age. Uh, that's, that's the age that uh, many of us uh, thought that we were bringing uh, information for liberation to the people, but it didn't last long. And the consolidation of media in just a decade or two wound up wiping out radio news uh, all over the country, not just in, in black radio. And we'd already seen the demise of black print media. And then we saw that uh, whatever contribution 
uh, television made uh, to to black awareness and to progressive awareness in general uh, went away as well. And we saw finally in uh, 1996 uh, with uh, the Clinton administration's uh, and the FCC, their FCC's uh, final blow uh, to independent radio, uh, the near total consolidation under corporate control of the radio waves. And then late after that, uh, we saw uh, how the, uh, the FCC uh, and the uh, executive branch basically gave away the signals uh, to uh, television when television uh, went to cable and sold them off, sold those signals off to private contractors, uh, private uh, companies, uh, instead of splitting up those signals and, and uh, creating uh, a whole new universe of television stations that could have gone uh, to black folks and Hispanics and, and uh, people who don't have conventional uh, politics. So now there's almost total hegemony of the airwaves uh, and the big circulation print media uh, by the corporations. And it's even gone further than that uh, in the last two years with Russiagate, so that we now have uh, fact-checkers and uh, vigilantes who are actually closely connected to the national security state who are scouring social media for signs of political disruption that is supposedly directed by uh, Russians, but what they're look, looking really to root out is dissent in the United States. So we're at a very low ebb in terms of actual, uh, the actual ability uh, to express dissident views in the United States. Glenn Ford, I really appreciate the opportunity to hear from you again. Thanks for making the time to speak with our listeners. No, thank you. We've been speaking with Glenn Ford, commentator, broadcaster, and co-founder and executive editor of Black Agenda Report. He joined us from Plainfield, New Jersey. Mumia Abu-Jamal, considered by many to be America's most high-profile political prisoner, received good news in late 2018 when a Philadelphia Common Pleas Court judge ruled he could re-argue an appeal before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on the grounds that then-Chief Justice Ronald D. Castile had previously been involved in Mumia's case as Philadelphia District Attorney during a prior appeal and therefore should have recused himself. But on January 25th, that ruling was appealed by Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, thereby delaying a possible vindication for Mumia by as much as a year. To take us through the latest wrinkles in the Mumia saga, we're joined by Suzanne Ross. She is the spokesperson for International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Could you comment on Judge Tucker's ruling last December? Was it in line with your expectations? Um, No, it was not in line with my expectations, nor most people's. And... uh, certainly not most Mumia supporters. And, you know, we've had such a long history of horrible judges, racist judges, you know, extremely um, uh, biased against Mumia and so on and so on. And uh, as Mumia put it, I thought he had the best comment. When he heard Judge Tucker's ruling, he said, well, that shows you what it's like when you don't have a lawyer that's been paid by the Fraternal Order of Police. Right after 
Krasna, the district attorney, the current district attorney, who was initially perceived as um, possibly, for some people, thought that he offered some hope for Mumia because he had a history of uh, supporting many clients, having had clients who were in the Black Lives Matter movement, who had been um, in the Wall Street, in the Occupy Wall Street movement, and so on and so on. And he had promised, had campaigned, that he would rule and revisit cases where there was unfair judgments. We expected, I mean, again, I don't speak for myself, lots of people expected that the DA was going to be um, a friend or at least more neutral than previous um, district attorneys, not out to get him. Um, and lo and behold, when I sat in the courtroom, I was shocked. Not because I expected, as I say, I myself was not expecting him to be kindly, but the intensity with which the district attorney's office, and it was not Krasner who was in the courtroom, it was a woman named Ms. Kavanaugh who um, uh, argued so hard for Mumia's guilt and that he should not that he should not have a new opportunity for an appeal. And I, who had been around in 1995 and 1994 and through the case since then, um, when I sat in the courtroom and closed my eyes at one point, I thought to myself, this case, this, this performance sounds like that of the Fraternal Police. There was no difference between the open Fraternal Police representatives who were the DAs of the uh, 90s, 80s, and 90s, and Krasner. They sounded the same. So lo and, below, lo and behold, here is this judge who's a Republican. He's a black judge and a Republican. Ends up shocking everyone, including me, <laughs> when he rules that Mumia, that... that um, uh, Castile had not actually directly, there was no, no, he didn't say that he didn't, wasn't involved in Mumia's case, but there was no evidence that they were able to find that showed that Castile was directly involved in Mumia's case at any point, which would automatically require that he would recuse himself, but that given that Castile had campaigned so hard for the death penalty, that he had that Mumia was as famous as he was and surely could not have been overlooked by um, Castile, and that Castile was someone who campaigned so hard for the death penalty, and especially for so-called cop killers, that the fact that he was known and bragged about all these things when he campaigned for office uh, as a judge, he bragged about those things, how many people he had sent to the death row, to death row, et cetera, et cetera. Given all that, the appearance, and this is his language, the appearance of bias is certainly in the picture. And that given that in a case that's this important and has such a long history, the appearance of bias is something that was not acceptable. You couldn't prove bias, but you could prove the appearance of bias. And based on that, based on that, he ruled that Mumia should have an appeal. 
the next day, Krasner report in a bizarre <laughs> incident, in a bizarre event, says, gives out a, a report that <clears throat> he uh, was looking for furniture among boxes of files and so on. And lo and behold, he came across six boxes that were clearly marked uh, with Mumia's name on them and also a former, somebody who had former worked in the district attorney's office who was uh, someone who was of the FOP um, um, bias. <laughs> and um, this box had, had his name and Mumia's name on it, six boxes. Shocking, right? That had never been opened, and um, they, the judge immediately ruled that the Mumia's lawyer should have access to those boxes. The day after Tucker's ruling, <laughs> he makes this announcement. Krasnamay. Now, what is the district attorney doing, looking for furniture in a storage room, and suddenly finds these six boxes? You know, the whole thing was very fishy. Um, so. Um, our Mumia's lawyers looked um, looked at those boxes. You know, they actually had a chance to review the material. And then on the third of January, uh, Krasner gives notice, announces that he's going to appeal Judge Tucker's ruling. In other words, um, so that's the that's the that's the timeline. And. Uh, on the 25th, and then it turns out uh, that another 100 boxes were found mm. and have to be evaluated. Now, all of that sounded very promising because we could not imagine that if you opened up those boxes, you wouldn't find in them unless they had already destroyed that material. And, you know, at least something was likely to be in there that would show, that would show the conspiracy that we've been charging that has been going on in Philadelphia to originally to execute Mumia and ultimately to keep him on death row, to keep him in prison until he dies. And this is the punchline. Because Krasna is appealing um, Judge Tucker's decision, that process has to happen first. In other words, they can't even discuss what's in those boxes until they've had a complete review of the appeal that Krasna is making of Judge Tucker's ruling. So unfortunately, that could take a long time. Mumia was originally, when he was originally taken off death row, when a judge ruled originally that he never should have been sentenced to death, even if guilty, never should have been dead. He remained on death row for another 10 years after that judge made that ruling. Yikes. The legal system, the way it works, time delays, most of the time, work to the defendant's disadvantage, and in this case, to Mumia's disadvantage. So uh, what Krasner did uh, was horrendous. The Yale Law students had done organized a conference on rebel lawyers, and he was seen as a rebel lawyer. And the minute other people heard of that, some Harvard students put
pushed the Yale students to disinvite him. The idea that here's someone who had just sold out and had done such damage to Mumia's case would now be honored was totally unacceptable, and he was successfully disinvited. And you have heard the message, which I hope you'll play for listeners, from Mumia that was read that night instead of Krasner's speech. And in Philadelphia, Krasner has now appeared at least four or five places in the last two weeks where he's been disrupted, where people have come with banners and signs saying, drop your appeal. Because the pressure has been, pressure on him from progressive people has been, drop the appeal of Judge Tucker's ruling. That's the concrete demand. And had he done that, and he still can do it, had he done that or still can do it, uh, the whole picture would be completely different, and I would be sounding more optimistic than I am right now. Okay, so there's still opportunities for the listenership to uh, the general public to influence that? Yes, every Tuesday there's a call-in to Krasner's office. I mean, you can call any time, call, email, um, every, every Tuesday. But you can call, I say you don't have to do it on Tuesday, but there's an attempt to focus on that day. So um, that's happening all the time, and people are, uh, like I say, Krasner cannot show up anywhere without somebody or other saying, what about Mumia? That was Suzanne Ross, clinical psychologist and international spokesperson for international concerned family and friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. More details on Mumia's case can be found at the site freemumia.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Bipartisanship between neoliberals and conservatives built the monster we now call mass incarceration. No so-called progressive prosecutor can or will unbuild it. That's because it took the entire system, DAs, judges, cops, defense lawyers, and prison administrators, not to mention the media, to collaborate on a monstrous project like mass incarceration. Only mass resistance can abolish mass incarceration. In other words, only a mass movement. We just heard an excerpt of a speech by Mumia Abu-Jamal played at the Rebellious Law Conference on Saturday, February 16th at Yale Law School. To listen to the entire 10-minute speech, please visit the site prisonradio.org and search for Rebel Lawyers Speech under Commentaries. In Philadelphia on August 8, 1978, in a pre-dawn raid, hundreds of Philadelphia police officers converged on the home of the Move family in the Powelton Village neighborhood, battering rams and at least four high-pressure fire hoses were used against the occupants. During an exchange of gunfire which ensued, one Philadelphia police officer, James Ramp, was shot and killed. The Philadelphia court system found the nine adults in the communal household criminally responsible for the killing and charged them with third-degree murder. This in spite of the fact that ballistics revealed Ramp had been shot at a downward angle while the alleged perpetrators were in the basement of the house below Ramp. Last year, after spending four decades in prison, two of the Move 9 were released on parole fully 10 years after being eligible. Debbie Africa was released in June, and her partner, Mike Africa Sr., released four months later. 
with two members having died while in prison that leaves five still behind bars and prison walls for the crime that they have continually asserted they never committed. For the first time since their early 20s, Debbie and Mike Sr. now in their 60s have been reunited with their children and grandchildren and can once again walk the streets freely. The Global Research News Hour welcomes Debbie, Mike Sr., and Mike Jr. to our program. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with our listeners. You got it, man. On the move. On the move. Debbie, uh, Mike Sr., please, if you could, could you convey to our listeners the feelings that you experienced on having finally being released and being reunited with each other and with your kids and grandkids for the first time after 40 years behind prison walls? Release. I always tell the story that um, when I was first sent to prison in seven, 1978, um, my oldest child was only two years. She wasn't even two years old yet. And Michael Jr. wasn't born yet. So I was pregnant with him. I had a two-year-old baby that was holding when the raid took place and she was taken from me and my daughter was taken from me and without even realizing how long I felt so heavy when I finally got released it was like a weight just came off of my heart and that's really all I can explain. Like as soon as I walked out that door, Michael Jr. was there and the family was there. His wife, his children, which are my grandchildren. Um, it was just like the weight was just lifted up off of my heart, and it was just, it was just, it's just a, a really great feeling to know that you know they finally, finally did something they were supposed to do, release us. Yeah. Well, for me, uh, it was relief also you know it's a day that we have waited for long for for all these decades sometimes feeling that it wasn't even going to happen uh, and I did not believe that it was happening until um, even when we was uh, granted parole I still didn't believe it would happen until I was finally out that door on the road with my son in the car um, that's at that point um, is when I finally believed that it had happened. And uh, it was due all to a lot of hard work from Mike Jr. and um, a lot of family and a lot of friends, a lot of supporters. So um, I was euphoric, man. It was, it was really, really nice. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> Mike Jr., maybe you'd like to comment on, on this day finally having arrived. I mean, sure, it's something you've dreamed about for, like, literally your entire life. Well, anything that you experienced that maybe you hadn't anticipated or expected? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it was the same thing for me. Um, you know, trying to get, trying to get, um, trying to get uh, something done and it not happening, you know, for a long time. So to actually finally get to that point and actually uh, be able to, you know, watch my parents walk out of the prison and rather than be, you know, carried out or rather than be wheeled out. And that was a, it was a big thing. It was important. It was a, it was a relief for me too. 
Debbie uh, and Mike, uh, Sr., could you maybe just take us back to that raid in 1978? Uh, I mean, we've all heard the clinical account, but I, I was curious to know about the memories that have stuck with you from that day and, and that have haunted you in, in the decades since, uh, you know, of what you saw and experienced on that horrible day. Uh, well, it was a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion. Um, it was mostly just dark um, because it, you know, it was a lot of tear gas and smoke and shouting and babies crying and dogs barking. And it was a lot of confusion, man. And it was a horrible, horrible day. Um, I just remember, you know, it was so dark you couldn't see anything in the basement. Because, as I said, it was shot in smoke and tear gas. So we couldn't breathe either, you know. And they had a lot of deluge hoses. And I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they were strong enough. The force of the water was strong enough to take uh, bricks out of the walls. So, you know, you had to shield yourself from that. And so, you didn't, you know, they were shooting from all you know, all directions coming in at us. So um, it was just a terrible day. Um, it was a miracle that we, you know, survived, that we came out of there. And then none of, none of our children were killed. So um, it was just a hard day for us. And Debbie, I mean, you, as I understand it, you were, were clutching your, your baby at the, at the time. I mean, this is before Mike was born, but uh, you know, maybe you have some uh, recollections from that time as well. Well, it was scary, that's for sure. It was scary. Um, it was scary being pregnant and holding a, a baby and watching other women who had babies and young children. Um, it was pretty scary. Um we're not really at liberty to talk about it at length because there's still litigation going on as far as the whole issue, you know, with that day. Um, you know, it was also a tragic day for the officer who lost his life and moved never, ever, ever, ever will nothing like that to happen. That not, there's never, ever been in our frame of mind, our frame of work, our frame of network, to have anything like that ever happen to anybody. Move belief is, a, is, is about life, about protecting life. And that's what we're about. That's what our whole purpose is, to protect life, not to encourage life to be destroyed or killed. And so, for me, all I can say is it was, really, it was a really scary day, and I didn't think we were coming out of that house alive. I don't even know how we came out of that house alive except for the fact that to say that it had to be a miracle. Yes. Could you talk, both of you, about the time you spent in prison? It must have been particularly difficult, given that as MOVE members, uh, you had a special diet and, and routines that were probably not compatible with what was being forced on you. What did you and, and your, your fellow incarcerated move members have to put up with and and uh, and how did you cope for the the past 40 years well um 
we pretty much had to eat really what the prison served. And um, aside from being down in county for three years, myself and my other little sisters who were down there, we we had to eat what they served. However, we did we were able to obtain some a few of the vegetables and fruits that we did that we did normally eat on the street for for those three years while we were in the county. But once once we went upstate, we would just had to eat pretty much what what everybody else had to eat. That, you know, and that's just the way it was. So the food wasn't the healthiest food to eat. You know, you hardly got any raw food at all, any vegetables. Everything was canned, and um, you know, we didn't really have the option the option until years and years later. You know, of what you could eat, and even the commissary that you bought food or snacks from, the snacks weren't the healthiest to buy either up until, like I said, like a few years maybe before I came home. Well, um, prison, the conditions of prison are pretty well known, man, and we're not the only victims of uh, of a system that jails people who are innocent. You know, just recently another um, person was released from uh, death row after doing 28 years by the uh, current district attorney. And the food is uh, historically um, horrible, you know. So these are well-known things. Not as well-known is the need for prison reform, which um, once we did settle in. We were always fighting for our freedom, always fighting to expose uh, an unjust system. But um, with um, I settled in on, what we settled in on, is a lot of prison reform, a lot of things uh, to expose and um, to help people uh, gain their freedom. And understand that um, while they might be working on their individual cases, there's a need to address a system that uh, systemically um, represses certain people. And we worked hard to uh, address those issues, and we did that even before we were jailed in the first place which is another reason why we were attacked in the first place. So um, this is something that we're still continuing to do uh, right now. You know, we are very much interested and active in the issue of prison reform. Mm. Um, and, and your interactions with uh, other inmates, I mean, not, you know, people who uh, you were also in, in prison, like, were you able to uh, interact with them and... You know, help continue the cause through your interactions with the people uh, who are also in in uh, in custody. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, and right now, you know, we still have people that now, once they're released, they just had an issue with the juvenile fifer. Uh, and in Pennsylvania, in the United States, um, they had a ruling where if they found it unconstitutional for juvenile lifers to, to be 
sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So many of them have been released over the last couple of years. And over the years, um, I had been in touch with many of them. We had all, all the people in, in prison had been in touch with a lot of them, mentoring them and keeping them out of, you know, some dire situations and protecting them from some dire situations. And they still come up to us to this day, thanking us about uh, those issues. So um, this is something that we continue to do now, mentoring people who's uh, freshly released or and staying in contact with some of the people uh, now. Um, I do have a story to tell about that, too. Um, one day I was, uh, when the, I was waiting for the bus <clears throat> to go someplace, and Michael Sr. was with me. When I got on the bus, the bus driver just kept looking, and he kept looking. He said, I know that guy. I know that guy. He said, wow. He said, man, that's a strong brother. And he looked at me and he said, um, he said, man, y'all are really strong people. And he, what he did was he recognized him from being released and he recognized him from a friend of his telling him who he was and how he had taken care of his friend while he was in jail. And he just was in awe of just seeing him on the street because he remembered when he was released. And this is the kind of response that we're still getting on the street from people that mostly have been in there with Mike. Mike Sr. I mean, we were in the supermarket the other, just about two weeks ago, and, um, you know, the guy, uh, a, a guy walked up to him and said, like, Dad, you know, Mike, you know, you know, just friendly and just always just so happy. And the first thing they say is, man, if it wasn't for you, he said, man, I would have been in some bad trouble. Like, you really kept me straight, you know, and these are the examples that we, we run into, like, all the time. There's a question I, that's been burning in my mind, and I just have to ask you. Um, you know, there's a saying that everyone who was alive at the time remembers where they were and what they were doing the day Kennedy was assassinated. Talk about that day in 1985 when you heard that the move home on Osage Avenue had been fired on and bombed by the police, killing uh, 11 of your family members, including six adults, and five children, including your group's founder, John Africa. Could you share your feelings on that day, how you got the news, and, and, and how you processed that information? I remember very well where I was at. Myself and the two, uh, the two move women who had children in that house in 1985. We were all in solitary confinement at the time, 1985. We were all locked behind a gate. We were all in solitary confinement with only one hour out for recreation a day. And we were given the news by an officer who just came by each of ourselves and said, there was a fire bombing and your child is dead. That's the way we got the news. And, in fact, let me think, it was three of them. It was Sue. Janine and Janet, whose children were in that house May 13th, and that's how we got the news. Well, for me, I was uh, up Huntington Prison, uh, 
1985, and I was watching it uh, unfold on the, either CNN or some. Yeah, it had to be CNN because it was wasn't local up there. And uh, I was just watching in disbelief, you know, and I didn't. Um, I never believed what I was seeing. Never believed that uh, our people were actually gone. And until I talked to some people, uh, some move people later. Um, sometimes I had, uh, I was left the TV set to call home, and I talked to a couple of the members of the organization. And um, they confirmed some things, and it was a very horrible, horrible, hard day. Yeah, that's uh, it, it. Must have been uh, quite horrible to have to get that news, and then you know your 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 your, your continued incarceration uh, goes on. Um, might I ask, how do you make sense of your release now, forty years later, and and ten years after being eligible for parole? Well, the sense of it is, is that we should have never been, as you mentioned in your uh, opening statement, um, that we should have never been convicted in the first place. Uh, that it took 40 years is, um, that's a system that needs reform. You know, that, that it should make more than move people in sense. It should make more people than move uh, concerned about prison reform. Uh, that it does not speak volumes of the system, not move people. Um, that we were speaking on it uh, in the beginning, before August 8th, before May 20th, before any historical record about uh, any confrontations between move and the city of Philadelphia should speak volumes about the move organization because we were aware of it before. We had stickers going on envelopes before. We were doing things in the community before this became a hot topic it is today. Uh, and thanks to Move's founder, John Africa, who got on this issue and stayed on this issue and warned people about this issue back then, uh, that he encouraged move people and opened the eyes of move people and made um, people aware of it and move people committed themselves to this issue. So um, it's no surprise that it took 40 years. Uh, some people, um, there, there are, you know, so many injustices in this system, man, about the things they do to people, the harm they cause to people. It's not just moves that, that are treated horribly like this. You know, so many things are not addressed in this system. You know, the child abuse, the child trafficking. Uh, there are so many missing people in the society. Uh, you have DACA. You have, you know, the environment that is treated so horribly and disdainfully. Um, you have water. Remember the, the, the situation in Detroit you might have heard of there. In Michigan where they were 
you know, they had dirty water that they were trying, that they were saying was safe for children to drink. And, of course, it was dirty. You could see that it was dirty. And now all these children had uh, brain damage and, you know, from lead poisoning. And they're still trying to, you know, wash their hands of that situation. So it's not surprising at all that they would treat one organization who speaks out against this in a horrible manner that they had or that it took 40 years for them to correct a wrong that never, never should have been in the first place. There have been, of course, a lot of changes in, in, in the world, in your city. What struck you the most about what's changed from the time you were jailed in 78 and, and what you're seeing around you now in 2019? Well, what was what was um, I don't know if I, the word striking is is the right word for it, but what was quite offensive to me, but not surprising to me, was the fact that we had to drink water out of a bottle and buy it. You know, something that's just so should be supposedly like the food used to be, free in abundance for all of life, all of humans to be able to endure is bottled up and sold for a profit. Something that you need in order to live. You cannot live without water. You cannot live without food. However, you know, we've lived in an, in a in a in an environment in a country, in a world that has prostituted the God given food by nature for centuries. For centuries, and so we're pretty much used to having to buy food. However, when you go back years and years ago and you read these books and even the Bible, you will see that you just go to a garden and pick food and eat it and survive. Well, that same mentality that caused man, the mentality of man, to take food from the earth that's given to us plentiful that prostituted the earth and put it in a supermarket in order for us to, in order for us to have to buy it, it's a sin. And so although we were used to that from growing up, you know, we just kind of accepted it that you had to just buy food from a, from a supermarket rather than just take it from the ground free. Well, when you come into the world now and after 40 years, Seeing that the water is actually bottled up and you have to buy it is is equally, if not more, of a sin. And it was it's disturbing because this is the way the system is going. This is the way humanity is going, and it is it is definitely a violation of our belief, and it's a violation of every God given every God given creature on this earth because it shouldn't be that way. So that was the most obnoxious, you know, disturbing thing to me. We know with technology comes more distortion and more um, imbalance and more imposition on the planet. And that's what we're seeing. You know, it's um, you can't go outside in the summertime without almost, you know, you almost turn into the bubble boy. You know, you got to have some some protection from life. And that's what, you know, all these so-called advances has 
cause on the planet. You know, everything is, you know, the, the Arctic looks like, you know, Florida, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm not really concentrating on uh, the changes. I'm concentrating on the things that uh, the constants that remain the same. You know, the loyalty in people, the good in people, the activism in people, and the people who always take the uh, chance and the time and the effort to speak out against the power that oppresses. No, I'm not concentrating on any of the changes, any of the new technology, you know, um, that they call advancement, because I know what the only thing that is advancing is a faster um, demise of the planet. So um, the things that are constant, you know, the, the love of my family, of, of people's families, and um, letting animals be animals and, you know, have their um, uh, territories and, you know, just letting people be, man without restriction, and uh, I'm concentrating on the hugs I get from my family. That's the thing that, you know, not the technology, not the advancement, you know, the love of my family, that's what I'm concentrating and that's constant. It's the same 40 years ago as it is today. I want to thank you for, for sharing with us. Is there, before we close, is there a, any message you have for our listeners who uh, wish to uh, show their solidarity uh, with, with your cause and uh, with, with the MOVE family. Uh, what, what, what do you like to say to them? Uh, this is Mike Jr. Um, yeah, uh, for people that want to get involved and want to help out with what we're doing, you can uh, go to my website. It's MikeAfricaJr.com, and at that website you can find links to the things that we're working on now. Uh, we started a nonprofit called the Seed of Wisdom Foundation, which we're um, working with people and young people and trying to get people to learn how to eat healthy and physical activity and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can also find out more information about the MOVE organization and uh, upcoming events and how to get involved and how to support. All the information that you need, you can go to MikeAfricaJr.com. Okay. Well, Debbie, Mike Sr., Mike Jr., it's been a unique privilege to speak with you. I uh, wish you all the best in, in your uh, endeavors, and uh, I believe you're doing a bit of touring. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Hey, thank you, oh, man. You're welcome, and thank you for inviting us. See you next time. We've been speaking with two of the recently released members of the Move 9, Debbie Africa and Mike Africa Sr., as well as their son, Mike Africa Jr. They joined us from their home just outside of Philadelphia. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.